Welcome back. You're listening to Out the Gate, a podcast about sailing and adventure, mostly on and around San Francisco Bay. And this week, we're going to stay on the theme of shipwrecks. In the last episode, we talked to Bianca and Fernanda, two Bay Area women who were shipwrecked on a small island in Indonesia while on a surfing vacation. And today, a story that I've heard many, many, many times because I used to ask my father to tell it to me over and over and over again when I was a child. It's the story of how he was shipwrecked in the 1960s aboard a large steel schooner in the South China Sea. So we'll hear it again today. I sat down with him not too long ago and had him tell it in more detail than usual. So here we go, my dad's tale of shipwreck, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say survival as well. Thank you, Dad, for joining me again for another episode of the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Ben. So I thought we'd jump in by giving a little backstory here about how you came to meet the boat that you would eventually be shipwrecked on in the South China Sea. Well, in 1965, I sailed on a 35-foot trimaran from the Caribbean to Australia with uh, two friends, and uh, then I spent a little over a year living and working in in Sydney. And when it came time to uh, think about heading back to the States, I had heard about a uh, 90-foot schooner. Actually, I had seen it over a year before in uh, Antigua, in English Harbor. It had not come down as far as Sydney. It stayed up in Queensland and Great Barrier Reef area, but several of the crew who had come across the Pacific were in Sydney and were part of the partying scene with the yachties. So uh, I reached out. They had a ham radio, and uh, through a a minister in Sydney, I uh, had reached out to them. There was a uh, young woman in Sydney who I knew who was uh, had a boyfriend that was on the ship. So once a week we'd go over to the minister's house and talk to them on the radio, and I made arrangements to meet them in Bali. Tell me a little bit about this boat. What was its name and what was its origin and who was aboard? It was a schooner, riveted steel construction built about 1924 in England, owned by a young man a year or two older than I, I guess, named Tom Kurth, who had set off to sail around the world on the boat with his wife and four kids. At some point, his wife decided to head back to... uh, go live in the Bahamas with friends of theirs, and she took the children. And the boat was named Dante Deo? The boat was named Dante Deo, Gift of God. And Tom was an American from uh, Milwaukee, came from a quite wealthy family who were in the uh, beer brewing business or providing materials for brewing anyway. Tom supposedly was on a scientific expedition, had funding from a museum in, in Milwaukee and maybe others, but there wasn't much science going on. They had come across the Pacific a few months after uh, I had crossed in Cygnus on the trimaran. It was a uh, lovely boat, and it had three diesel engines. It had a a main engine, which was a GM671, had a a diesel AC generator and a diesel DC generator, as well as a small gasoline generator on board, which plays into the story of the shipwreck. This is quite a difference in size 
and I would imagine comfort and equipment than you had on the trimaran. Uh, which... Just slightly, uh, certainly more commodious, although maybe not in uh, better shape. The uh, the main boom had broken when they jibed once and uh, been replaced by a uh, Miami telephone pole. That gives you an idea of the scale of the boat. Uh, there were three heads on board. At one point when we were in Indonesia, none of the three worked. They were all clogged or uh, otherwise disabled. Fortunately, the bulwarks were high enough to be comfortable to sit on and use as a toilet. And how about that? They had sailed many miles. What was the the sailing skills of those on board? Yeah, uh, well, Tom had started. I don't know where he bought the boat. I, I think in the, probably in Florida. You know, by the time you get to Australia or Singapore, you've got a few miles under your belt. So they had just sailing skills. What attracted you to catching a ride home on this boat? Obviously, you'd well, reached it was out to intriguing them. to be on a boat that size, and they were heading up through an interesting area of uh, of the world and uh it again i guess it was my adventuresome spirit but it seemed like a hell of a lot more fun than taking an airplane from sydney back to philadelphia right so you'd been in touch with them regularly how did you connect with the boat well it was a bit regularly but then it became sporadic so i booked a flight to meet them in bali and uh, then somehow i can't remember how i got word that they were going to be leaving bali the day that I was arriving. So I was a little tense about that. I tried to communicate with them, but again, this was 1967, February. Uh, I tried to, to make a, a long distance telephone call and that was unsuccessful. And then I tried to send a telegram and that was unsuccessful. Ultimately, I was flying on Qantas to Jakarta and then had an ongoing flight the next day on Garuda to Bali. And I attempted to uh, work through Qantas to their office in Bali to try and get a message to the to the boat. Uh, never was I able to get confirmation that they got the message of when I was intending to arrive. Nevertheless, I flew on to Jakarta. A chap from the hotel where I was staying took me to the post office, which was surrounded by sandbags and machine guns because there was a little bit of political strife going on at the time. And I uh, paid my money and booked a call from Jakarta to Bali sat there for a couple of hours, and finally, upon further inquiry, determined that there were no telephone lines between Jakarta and Bali. So I gave up and figured, what the hell, I'll fly out the next day. The plane was delayed, and we finally got in several hours after we were scheduled to get in, and I was greatly relieved. There was one of the Americans who was crew on board was there at the airport to meet me in Bali. As it happened, they were planning to depart that morning. We're in a cafe having coffee, and a chap from the Qantas office came by and gave him my message <laughs> that I was arriving. That is amazing. That is amazing. Unfortunately, I didn't get much of a chance to see uh, much of Bali at all. We took a cab from the airport to the to the boat and immediately took off. So, what was the where were they headed and what was the rush? Well, the plan was to go to uh, Surabaya on the. Uh, east end of the island of Java, because that was a, a major port, but also in Borobudur there was a big Buddhist temple from, I don't know, 12th century, I guess, and we wanted to see that. We did that, and when they had entered Indonesia on the island of Flores, the boat was well-armored. Uh, they had uh, submachine guns and pistols and rifles and God knows what, and the, the uh, authorities had boarded them there and 
taken all the weapons off and confiscated them and also had taken their passports. Ultimately, they got their passports back, but uh, the police refused to give them the guns and told them that when they, uh, when they got to uh, Jakarta, they could collect them. Now, these weapons were for, again, to guard against pirates? Guard against pirates, that was the explanation, yeah. And was that a problem that you had faced at all in the 60s cruising? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Although, you know, I had not cruised in Indonesian waters of the Straits sure. of Malacca. And, and on and such histo- a big boat. Historically, the Straits of Malacca, you know, it was an area where pirates operated sometimes. So did they end up getting them back in Jakarta? No. And so from Surabaya, we were planning to go to Jakarta. And uh, my gut feeling was that it was just a wild goose chase. And so I suggested to Tom, who was the skipper and owner, that uh, why don't we just go on to Singapore? And if, in fact, the the guns were going to be delivered to the American embassy in Jakarta, they could be sent on to Singapore easily enough. And ultimately, that's what we did. Tell us a little bit about life aboard. What was the, the dynamic? How many well, people? it was an interesting cast of characters. There was an Austrian chap... Gerhard, I can't remember his name. It's been a few years. Uh, the the one American who was on board and, and another Australian dentist who I knew got off in uh, in Indonesia. There was Terry, who was a, a young girl who had been living as a hermit on a deserted island in the uh, in the Barrier Reef when when the boat came in and she decided to uh, to join the crew. There was Tom the owner, and um, his son, seven-year-old son, had flown out to Singapore and joined the boat there. Oh, and there was uh, Rod Iverson, who was uh, a young Australian. And basically, uh, by the time we were ready to leave Singapore, we were down to just Tom, Rod, Terry, and and myself, plus the seven-year-old. So most of you, I imagine, are 20s, Maybe 30s? Yeah, late 20s was probably, I I can't remember. I was about 26 at the time, and Tom was maybe 28. We felt we wanted more crew, and the plan was to sail from Singapore to Hong Kong. Tom was going to put an ad in the paper, and I said, well, why don't we just go to the English-language paper in Singapore, the Straits Times, and, and tell them about the boat and sort of plant a story and say we're looking for crew, which ultimately we did do. We picked up, I guess, two Malcolm something or other, an 18-year-old Englishman who had raced to Singapore from Hong Kong on a boat and was looking for a ride back home. And uh, another English, oh no, we picked up three, and an Englishman and who has been hitchhiking around the world and a Canadian who had been on boats and been hitchhiking. The funny thing was that the Canadian and I had met in Panama and he ended up getting on a, on a motor yacht that was headed east and I was on the catamaran going west. At the time, I had a beard, and he didn't have one. And when we met again in Singapore, uh, I was clean-shaven, and he had a beard. And it took us several days (laughs) once we got underway before we realized that we had known one another, you know, a year and a half before. So, uh, I'm sorry I wasn't keeping count. How many people total were on the ship? I think there were six adults and the one child. Six adults and one child. Okay. Uh, The interesting thing that I failed to mention about Terry, the hermit girl, was uh, that she never wore any clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so the one woman aboard. Uh, she got, off, she got off in Singapore as well. Okay. So she wasn't on, on the boat when we left. You push off from Singapore. We push off from Singapore. 
now Singapore is virtually on the equator. We're heading to Hong Kong, which is tropical, but you know the, the northern end of it. And there was all sorts of scuba diving equipment on board. I'd never dived, but before we left the tropics, we thought it'd be fun to go scuba diving. So we were looking for somewhere to stop along the way. And looking at the charts, there's uh, a, a series of small coral atolls off the coast of Vietnam, south of China, which we thought would be a good place. Very much in the news now. Very much in the news now. Because China so was is claiming Well, if the ownership. Philippines are claiming, the Chinese are claiming, the Chinese are building bases and arming these ba- these islands. But at the time, it, the uh, the ownership was very questionable because they were claimed by Vietnam and by China and, and this by is the Philippines. The, what are n- called the Parasol Islands? Well, the, where we ultimately ended up was, was the okay. par- there are several groups. I don't want to jump the gun the here. The Pratleys and the Paracels and a few others. So uh, using the ham radio, we talked to a ham who was in the RAF in, in Malaysia, tried to determine who owned the, the islands that were closest to our track on our way to Hong Kong. And there was one coral atoll uninhabited on the chart called Bombay Reef. And uh, again, it, it was one of these disputed, but when we established that, that nobody lived there, we figured that would be a, a good place to stop. So that was our intention was to stop there and do some diving. And uh, we had very little wind, so we were motoring, and we motored for three or four days, and we're running a little low on fuel. So we had a discussion about what we should do, and Tom, the owner, decided, well, gee, we, we're not far from the Mekong River. We could go into Saigon and refuel, but there happened to be a war going on. more <laughs> called the Vietnam War. Too bright an idea to sail up the Mekong River in this 90-foot schooner with a big American flag on the stern. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have to come to blows over that decision because we encountered a uh, Singaporean tug from Selco Salvage, which was towing a barge with pieces of a pier, new pier that they were going to install in Vietnam from the Philippines to, uh, to Vietnam. And we hailed them and went alongside. The officers were Australian. I don't know what the mix of the uh, the crew was on this tugboat, but we ended up tying alongside for the day, and they, uh, fit for $20, they filled our fuel tanks with diesel fuel. They had livestock on the deck of the tug, pigs and chickens and stuff that they slaughtered along the way for food. And we spent the day chatting, telling sea stories, drinking rum with the crew, and we had dinner, and uh, as the sun was setting, we cast off, and the skipper had asked us where we were going, and we said, well, we're heading to Bombay Reef and the Paracel Islands, and his parting words were, it's a good place to stay away from if you're not confident in your navigation. <laughs> and, and those were uh, <laughs> profound words in retrospect. So you set off, untie, and head off into the night. And head off into the night. As I said, there were a number of diesel engines, uh, generators, and, and all on the on the boat. Well, the AC generator hadn't been working, but we worked on that. And finally, that day, we got the AC generator working. And what were you powering from the AC generator back then? Uh, the big thing was the oven. Okay. Now that we had a working oven, I took over the duties that night of cooking rather than navigating. And I was making baked potatoes and a roast beef. I mean, we had a huge freezer full of food. And Tom took over the duties of navigating and, and got a, uh, a good star sight at, at dusk. So stop just for a second. 
obviously this is before GPS. All celestial. So you're doing all celestial navigation. And your celestial, I would imagine, had gotten pretty good crossing the other direction. Yeah, well, we were all reasonably proficient. It's, yeah. you know. Yeah, one nice thing about Celestial lets you know if you're, if you're totally out of the ballpark, either you're there or you've screwed up somewhere. Okay, so Tom had taken over. So Tom took over, and he got a he got a good fix. His mistake was, as I said, there was very little wind, so we were sailing, but we were sailing at three knots. We had about a one knot current setting us along our course. In fact, we were doing four knots, but Tom in DRing, subtracted instead of adding the one knot current for our speed. So he had us going two knots instead of four knots. The second major mistake he made was he planned to arrive at this submerged reef at, at daybreak, at dawn. As you well know, you're much better off with a high, high sun midday to, and when you're trying to visually navigate around a submerged reef. He did was prudent enough to say, well, okay, at four o'clock in the morning, let's set a double watch. Normally we only had we'd stand forty-five minute watches, somebody on the helm, and that was it. I was supposed to come on watch with somebody else at, at four in the morning, and about a quarter to four I got up. I was sleeping on deck because it was quite warm and we had these big foam mattresses on top of the house. Anyway, I got up and was relieving myself over the side when all of a sudden there was this horrible crunch. Oh. And uh, one thing I didn't mention is that the boat drew 14 feet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so there we were, <laughs> solidly stuck in the reef. We Our navigation was bang on. It's just we got there a little too early on a very dark night. Tell me about that moment. You were standing there, I imagine, holding onto a shroud or something. And bang, crunch, stop. And you immediately knew? That was pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> So the first first was, well, we'll try and back off. So we put the engine on, reversed, and we didn't move. So <clears throat> next was, well, let's try and catch off with an anchor. So we got an anchor. Still completely dark or dawn started no, to break it all? still completely dark. Okay. So we, uh, we got an anchor and got a line and tied it to the anchor. Of course, we didn't have any chain or anything on it and couldn't heave it very far, but I tied the bowline, and we heaved it off the fantail, and we pulled on the line, and the line came back, and I guess it wasn't a bowline. Oh. <laughs> so that technique didn't work. Well, the next move was let's take an anchor out. We had a 13-foot Boston whaler as a dinghy, and that was in davits on the side of the on the starboard side of the boat. So we got an anchor, and uh, the Canadian and I got into the uh, into the Boston Whaler, and we lowered it into the water, and I said to the guys on deck, don't cast us off until I get the outboard running. Well, they cast us off, and it took a number of tries to get the engine on the dinghy to run, and when it finally did start, uh, by then the dinghy had drifted into shallow water, and uh, the shear pin on the propeller immediately sheared. So now he and I... that For those who don't know, the propeller... Obviously, it hit the coral, hit the coral, and there's a pin that will pin like a fuse, save the... which which saves the propeller, but uh, you lose propulsion. So the engine was running, but the propeller wasn't turning, and we were drifting to China <laughs> on mm. a very dark night. 
we had oars in the boat, but it was impossible to row a 13-foot whaler. So he and I started paddling, trying to get back in the direction of the boat that was stuck in the reef. The you could still see the, the boat we, at that We point. could still see it. We were both barefoot, obviously, just wearing shorts. Every time the oars would hit the coral, he and I would jump over and try and walk the boat in the direction of the ship. You know, and then when it would get deeper, we'd jump back in and paddle. paddle. And I don't remember all the details other than our feet got badly cut up. And after what seemed an eternity, we got close enough to the schooner that somebody could heave us a line. So we felt like we had been rescued, <laughs> greatly yeah. relieved that we were back aboard the sinking. <laughs> <laughs> back aboard a sinking ship. Yes. Yeah. Now the boat, the, the, the schooner had not started to take water or anything. We were just stuck, but we were not sinking and it would be difficult to sink with the keel wedged into the coral by the time we got back on board we learned well first they continued to try and back off and the engine had overheated because i guess the cooling water was blocked or something so rod who was acting as engineer the young australian was burned when the engine kind of overheated and boiled and so he had some burns on his arms but the good news was that using the ham radio rig, which was an illegal 2,000-watt output, they had reached a ham radio operator at an Air Force base in Germany and put out a May Day. And so at least we knew that people knew we were in distress. Secondly, it was probably the best place in the world if you were going to have an emergency in that the entire U.S. military resources were within two, 300 miles. <laughs> yes. So that was somewhat a relief to know that, that somebody knew that we were in trouble. And as dawn started to break, we saw the outline of a ship not far away. So we started firing flares. But as dawn continued, we could see that, no, it wasn't a ship. It was the wreckage of a ship further down the reef. <laughs> so that took a little wind out of our sails. But not long thereafter, a, a Navy patrol P-3 anti-submarine plane came over and made a few circles and waggled his wings to let us know that he had seen us. Okay. So again, a sense of relief. It wasn't it wasn't yeah. rescue, but at least further confirmation that we had been seen. And, and what was the general, I don't want to say mood, what was the atmosphere on board? Uh, obviously a sense of release that you'd been seen. Was there any sort of panic? Uh, what was the leadership like? As it was the- interesting. There was tension, but not panic. I remember Scooter, the young seven-year-old, was, quotes, lightening the vessel by throwing his boomerang <laughs> and hoping it would come back. So he wasn't too stressed out. <laughs> he wasn't too stressed out. Strange kid. He was, the foresail, which was a gaff, did not come down terribly well, so it was kind of a mess. And he was lying in the sail smoking a cigarette at seven years old. <laughs> I mean, it was a surreal scene. Yeah. Um, the Canadian was in the galley, which by then was starting to take on a little water. So he was standing sort of thigh deep in water, cooking pancakes for breakfast. <laughs> I think you have a picture of that somewhere. And uh, and Tom, the owner, was gathering his valuables, his tax records and things. I, feeling a little more practical, I think, uh, was gathering some charts and a shortwave battery-operated portable radio and some water and things that I thought we might need if we had to abandon ship. Mm-hmm. In the morning, I had fixed the uh, shear pin and the uh, dinghy, and Tom okay. had put on 
diving gear and gone down and looked at the keel, which was well wedged into the coral. So we knew we were, we were stuck, but unlikely to disappear below the surface. The next thing that happened after the uh, P-3 came by, a uh, Air Force Constellation came by. They dropped two 20-man life rafts out for us. Other than the Boston Whaler, did you have any other? We had raft? a 10-man life raft with a canopy over it. Okay. Yeah. So we had the Whaler, we had the 10-man. There were only seven persons on board. Yeah. And their aim was pretty poor. But fortunately, we had the whaler, so we went out and we retrieved. The, the, the life rafts hadn't inflated; they were floating, but you know, still compressed. And we towed those back. So the first one we started to open up, and it had you know minimal supplies, survival e equipment, and then we found a little radio, which was a bailout type emergency radio that, in theory, would allow us to talk to the aircraft. But it didn't work. Hmm. So we inflated that raft, I guess, and then we dug into the other one, and we did find a radio in that that did work. Okay. So we could talk to the plane that was overhead. I think a second constellation came after the one that actually made the drop. They said uh, that there was a minesweeper that had been dispatched to pick us up, and it would be there at 1 o'clock. And I said to the pilot, well, it's already 1330, so how is he going to have an ETA of 1 o'clock? Oh, he said, oh, no, 0100. Uh, middle of the night so that was a little disheartening not long thereafter the waves were washing sweeping the main deck so we figured well it'd be prudent to uh, get into the life rafts and and off the schooner then we had another one of these discussions about what should we do once we get in the raft and since we had all this line that was in the life raft i suggested we tie a line to the schooner because if it wasn't going to sink the larder was full there was plenty of food and beer and canned goods and everything else sure. so if we had to come back depending on how long we we're out there we'd be better to be moored to that tom wanted to go into the reef and i argued that so you knew that you you could see the opening we, to the we reef. could see a little more of the atoll okay. and where, where the reef line was but i said if we sheared the, the propeller on a boston whaler that any boat that the minesweeper would put in the water to come get us would have difficulty getting over the coral. I felt we were better to stay. It was calm, calm weather. I felt we would be better off to stay out at sea and not be in the reef if they tried to get us. So that's ultimately that's what we did. We had we had fuel for the Boston Whaler. We had so we had an armada. I'm the, sorry. Ultimately, you did which of the two? We stayed at sea. You we stayed, stayed okay. outside the reef. I was madly trying to finish a novel I was reading. So the Englishman and I were in the 20-man life raft. Can't remember who was in the whaler and who was in the 10-man raft, but we, you know. It was spread out. We had a boat for every two people. All tied together? <laughs> All tied together, yeah. Do you and remember what novel? It's about the first black president. I used to remember the name of it. Huh. <laughs> now this is mid-afternoon, I guess, we finally set out in the life raft and it wasn't long thereafter that a seaplane came by hmm. and the the navy had stopped using seaplanes but the air force had taken over using them to pick up pilots who had to bail out off the coast of vietnam 
they would go up on patrols regularly. And if in this case, there was nobody had bailed out of a fighter and they were free to assist us. And we were, again, using that little radio, able to communicate with them. And they preferred to land in the lagoon of the atoll, provided they could find deep enough water. I don't know what the draft of the seaplane is, probably four feet or something like that. So they asked us to go inside the atoll and probe with our oars to make sure that it was deep enough for them to come in and land, which ultimately they did do. The seaplane landed without any difficulty, taxied over in our direction, uh, and a uh, survival swimmer jumped out, <laughs> <laughs> swam over, got a hold of a, a line to our armada of boats, and uh, it was the, probably the scariest moment was when the uh, the pilot was trying to hold the plane in position and he was backing the propellers, and we were kind of being sucked towards the propellers oh. as we came alongside the plane. But, you know, it was never really too dangerous. We, we got safely aboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rod, was the Australian, was excited because of his first airplane ride he'd ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a way to make your first airplane ride. After we all got aboard, they took a, a submachine gun and shot up the rafts, but the Boston Whaler wasn't about to sink even. Yeah. Even if it was shot up. So then the question... Well, did they give a reason for that, just to... Just to get him out of the get way. Get him out I of the guess. way, yeah. But then the uh, the question was, did they have enough room to take off? Hmm. And they did carry what were called Jado bottles, which were nothing more than rockets that could be attached to the side of the plane to take off in a shorter distance. But the pilot decided he'd give it one try first with just the engines, which were it was successful. So we we got airborne as we. Headed back towards Da Nang in Vietnam, we flew over the minesweeper that was heading to uh, pick us up. It was not a very long flight, and we got into Da Nang early evening, had a shower and, and dinner, and watched a Batman movie. Meanwhile, as I said, Tom's, Tom came from a very wealthy family, so his father was busy on the phone calling his senator and congressman and calling admirals in Hawaii saying, not thank you for picking up my son and grandson, but get them the hell out of the war zone because <laughs> we were in Vietnam. Mm. About 10 o'clock that night, there was a C-130 that had been up to the demilitarized zone picking up casualties, and they washed the blood out of that plane, and they gave us this huge transport for the seven of us to take us to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, where we landed in the middle of the night. Had you been able to contact your family? How had they first heard about this ordeal? Once we got to Clark Air Force Base and the next day, we uh, got access to what's called MARS. I don't know what it stands for, but it's the the military's amateur radio. Members of the military have clubs, amateur radio clubs and stuff, and they let us use their radio. And and Tom was using the same call sign. It was interesting because people on the net were saying, oh, we heard them for the May Day last night, but they must be all right because they're back on the air. <laughs> but I was successful in, uh, in in getting a phone patch, which was the way you communicate in those days. Yeah. You reached a ham ashore someplace, and they would make a long-distance call to a number that you wanted to speak to. And so I did talk briefly to my parents and tell them that we were safely in the Philippines. Concurrently, my brother in New York was uh, shaving in the morning and listening to the news on WQXR. There was a bulletin 
that they had picked up six or seven people, whatever, off a yacht that had gone aground. What they failed to say in the story was how many people were on board that they really got to everybody. So that left him relieved but concerned because he didn't know exactly what the situation was. And he knew that, he, I mean, he, he assumed that, that, that was, on, was the on, boat. The, yeah. on that boat. Wow. Wow. So what was the first, what do you remember in terms of feeling relieved when you made it to shore? Well, obviously there was a great sense of relief. Um, never were we really panicked or fearful, I don't think. Uh, it's strange the, the, the thoughts you have and the, and the things you do. So the next day when we're all safe in Clark, then we started arguing about who was going to get the money from selling the story to Life magazine. <laughs> and Tom was insistent it was his boat, and therefore he ought to get all the money. <laughs> and we felt more, yeah, it's, it's our story, we ought to share it. As it turned out, I think most of the, Tom and, and, and most of the others, I guess, had Nikon cameras, which the little bit of salt spray and stuff we took in the life raft kind of ruined the cameras. And I was the only one, I think, that got any photographs. What, what was your camera? Yeah, it was a Honeywell Pentax. Huh. And so, was the story sold? No, no one ever wrote it. <laughs> Years later, I think Rod wrote one for some magazine in Australia or a South, South Pacific Island Monthly. I'm not sure. So you got a shower. You got a meal. We got a shower and a meal. Um and I gave the t I was wearing a T-shirt that was made by a friend Charlie Dole in Australia, but it, it, in psychedelic writing it said "fuck you" on it. I gave that in gratitude to the pilot. He was tickled pink with it. <laughs> but that was back in Vietnam, and so then the problem became: we were now guests of the U.S. military at Clark Air Force Base. My feet were cut up, and and as were the Canadians and Rod's arms were burned and all so they we wanted to seek some medical attention but the military couldn't figure out how to give us medical attention because we were not members of the military finally <laughs> they resolved it by saying well there is there is something in the budget for people to people <laughs> program so under the people to people program we can take they, care of they, they tended to our problems they also gave us free reign of the uh, of the px so we could buy some clothes and stuff what did you? Oh, well, was this clothes on your back? I got, I you got would... most of my slides. Okay. I was able to salvage those. I remember Tom had a an early underwater movie camera. He, he salvaged that and the ship's bell, but you know there wasn't much that that the one that we could take in the raft or two they would let us take on the plane because the plane was quite weight limited at that point. Mm -hmm. and, you know the concern about being able to take off from the lagoon there. So, but the other problem was that, that the Philippines require visas. None of us had visas to be in the Philippines, so we couldn't leave the Air Force Base until that got resolved. And that took a couple of days. Well, I guess we got temporary visas or at least permission to, to go to the Manila Airport and, uh, and fly out of the Philippines. And how did you decide where to go next? Well, Malcolm, the young Englishman, lived in Hong Kong because his father was in the Royal Army. He was head of the vice squad in Hong Kong, and they had a lovely apartment, and he invited me to come stay with him, so I flew on to Hong Kong. 
your destination was still eventually home, correct? Yeah, I was heading home. <laughs> heading back <laughs> to the United States. Path. And so how long were you in Hong Kong? Uh, probably a week or so. Uh, but uh, Malcolm's father was also a member of the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club. Uh, and I did did one race in a star class boat out of the, the Hong Kong Yacht Club. And while I was at the Yacht Club, there was a, a uh, kind of a bedraggled 50 foot wooden catch flying an American flag. And I went over to check them out. And it turns out it was a group of American Quaker activists who had sailed to Haiphong with medical supplies in the middle of the Vietnam War in an effort to pr promote peace. Peace activists. And uh, they had had a crew of six or seven, but everybody was short of time, had taken vacation time to, uh, to do that trip, and most of them had gone home. So the boat was owned by Earl Reynolds. The boat was Phoenix, Phoenix of Hiroshima. Hiroshima, I guess. His young, he, he was a professor of anthropology from the States who had come over to Japan right after the war as part of a study group to, his uh, job was to look into the impact and effects of radiation on young infants and uh, in utero infants. Hmm. But while he, he and his family were living in, in Japan, he had always wanted to sail around the world for, you know, for peanuts he could have a boat built in Japan post-war Japan so he had this commission the uh, construction of a Phoenix and he and his family had taken off and sailed around the world that's a whole other story but he got radicalized they, they ended up sailing into the uh, exclusion zone where the Americans were testing nuclear weapons in, in the Marshall Islands and was arrested by the Coast Guard US Coast Guard and his teenage son and daughter were left on the boat in Anawitak while he and his wife were flown back to Hawaii to stand trial for trespassing in the, in the exclusion zone. Wow. So ultimately, I, I don't know, it was a hung jury or what, whatever. He was not convicted. They completed their circumnavigation. He and his wife divorced, but they both ended up being very active in the peace movement. And I think they converted to to Quakerism. They weren't Quakers initially, but as, as all this part of this peace movement, they became Quakers. So anyway, the, he and his 25-year-old his wife, who had been a former student of his in Japan, a Japanese woman, and Bob Eaton, who was the mate, was about 22 years old, a Swarthmore graduate, uh, were left on the boat. They were looking for crew to sail back to Japan, so I joined them for that journey. And how long was that journey? A couple of weeks. The boat was a dog to sail. Akia, the Japanese wife of Earl, was chronically seasick, so she just laid under the table mm -hmm. the whole voyage. And Earl and, and Bob and I sailed the boat back. We, we <clears throat> went into uh, initial landfall in Japan was Nagasaki and spent a couple of days there and then worked our way up to Hiroshima, which was the home port. And then, as I understand it, you caught a freighter home? I spent probably a month in Japan. Bob and I hitchhiked for a week or two around Japan. And then I signed on his crew on a, uh, on a merchant vessel, which was going from Japan back to the States. And what was your homecoming like? Well, it was an arduous journey because it was a horrible vessel, very poorly managed. We broke down before we ever 
left Japan. We, we went from Yokohama to Yokosuka, which is a few miles, and broke down just getting into the Navy base in Yokosuka and had to drop the anchor. As we were heading across the Pacific, it was supposed to be nonstop to the canal. The evaporators weren't working. We were running out of water, so we went into Midway Island, and that was supposedly just to take on water, but we spent about a week there getting the evaporators repaired, and we no sooner left Midway Island than we broke down again and <laughs> drifted for about a day, and the, and the Navy sent out a helicopter and lowered a note and a Coke can to, <laughs> to the ship saying, you're about to run onto a reef. <laughs> shall we, uh, oh, shall we that, send out a tugboat? That would have been just your luck to... Uh... <laughs> Go on to a reef twice. <laughs> so ultimately, we did get, we were heading on a great circle route well north of, of Hawaii uh, for Panama and uh, made a right angle turn and went into Honolulu again for uh, repairs and water. Uh, I tried to get off the ship, but it's like enlisting in the military. Once you, under the Merchant Marine rules, once you sign on, and which I did at the consulate in, in Yokohama, uh, you're there for the duration of the voyage till it reaches its final destination. Well, what was your role? On oh, the ship? I was a messman. I, <laughs> I would set the table. <laughs> it was a very interesting experience. In Hong Kong, I mean, in uh, Honolulu, I went to the the hiring hall for the Seafarers International Union and tried to find a replacement. Of course, the uh, the ship's reputation had preceded it, so nobody wanted. To, <laughs> nobody wanted. To take nobody you wanted up. to replace me. Fortunately, I had a fraternity brother who was in the Air Force there, and so I had some good times with him. But then I had to get back aboard and and head off to Panama. But the the company who owned this ship or managed it, it put an engineer aboard who was a lot more savvy, and things went smoothly from Honolulu till we got back to New York. Through the Panama through the Canal, canal and then yeah, up to my New second York. Time, my third time through the canal. I'd hmm. gone through on a battleship as a midshipman on a 35-foot sort of sublime to the ridiculous on a 35-foot trimaran. And you had taken off to meet the trimaran in what year? February of 65. February 65, and you returned home? September of 67. So... That was uh, quite an adventurous three years that you had spent there. Yeah, two and a half, whatever. Two and a half, yeah. yeah. An eventful time and a wonderful time. And How many of those, I know you're in touch with Bob Eaton, the gentleman you sailed with to I lost Japan. track of him and even forgot his name for 30, 35 years. Finally decided to uh, rekindle this by reading some of my letters, found his name, Googled him, uh, found a chap who had graduated from Swarthmore about the right time and was mapping landmines for the United Nations. So I figured probably found the right guy. And he was living in Tacoma Park, 10 miles. From where, from and, where you uh, were in Falls Church. And we were in Falls Church. We uh, have since become close friends. For his uh, 60th birthday, I guess, the family had given him, he had built a couple of small sailing boats and the family gave him plans for a uh, 42-foot schooner, which after 14 years, they completed building he and his son and have it up in Maine and we've sailed with them a number of times up in Maine. That's wonderful. And any of the characters from the shipwreck? Well, I've had no contact with Tom, but the hearsay, he went back and at some point built a large ferro-cement Chinese junk, which he was sailing on with his with Terry, the hermit girl, mm -hmm. uh, I forget who it was that had, had a sighting of them. 
he uh, built bought, bought a parts of a partial damaged resort or something in Huahini and built a million dollar resort which was then wiped out in a typhoon hmm. uh, so I don't know what's what's become of him and Rod Iverson the uh, Australian on board had an older brother who I had met met briefly uh, just before I departed to join the boat in Bali his brother came by and gave me a package to deliver to Rod and uh, when mom and I in 1971 72 were sailing in the Caribbean the brother who I had met in Sydney was skippering a uh, 44-foot boat for a guy I think was President Raytheon or something and uh, he's the one that that uh, knocked on the hull to tell us our boat was sinking in St. Ah, Thomas. Well, that story's <laughs> in small another world. episode. Yes. And, and we've actually, in, in trips to Australia, we, Mom and I had dinner with Rod and his wife. Mm. He had a son who was a pilot for Qantas, ultimately. And the boat, Dante Deo, any word on? As far as I know, she's still on the reef. Still on the, I'm sure, quite battered by the waves. Yeah, well. You were able to to look recently at the at the reef from Google Maps. Oh, no? Google Maps has the reef, and I, in putting together the book I did during the lockdown, I I found articles in Navy publications about the guy who received our our Mayday call, uh, the Navy sailor, and uh, other bits and pieces like that. It was great trying to pull it all together. Anything about that experience that you want to? touch on that we haven't talked about i mean in retrospect it was a very positive experience gotten a lot of miles out of the story <laughs> i certainly grew up on it asking you to tell it to me over and over and well, over your mother again. claims she remembers the details better from having heard well, it. her when claim it was still, is well, it's still fresh in my mind yeah she, well she met you right after you came back and her her claim is that the first time your first date your first meeting that you regaled her with this story and uh she was impressed with how adventurous you she were. She and your grandparents both, because I just went over to their house. It was tea time on a weekend, and we chatted. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing it yet again with me and all the listeners. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the podcast, and it's always a pleasure to contribute. That's all for this episode. I will post some pictures from my father's shipwreck on Instagram, and you can find those at Out the Gate Sailing. You can reach out directly to me if you have questions or suggestions for podcast guests at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the program, please leave a comment in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. That's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, and as always, smooth sailing.